Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 48. As we've been studying through this book, this great book on uh, the Lord's salvation that he promises uh, to particularly the nation of Israel, but even as we learn in this book that is the salvation that he promised to Israel is a salvation that extends to the ends of the earth. And for us today, it extends to us as well. So we're grateful for this uh, opportunity to study the salvation that God provides. If you're a visitor with us or you're kind of maybe on the second or third time here, you're just checking us out. We're glad to have you with us or, and glad uh, that the Lord orchestrated and ordained for you to be here today. And we pray that as you uh, visit with us, as you uh, come and sit here under the teaching of God's word, that the Lord would draw you closer to himself. That if you do not know his salvation, that you would uh, come to know the salvation that is offered to all of us in Jesus Christ, his son. Isaiah chapter 48 is where we'll be today. I'm going to take the whole chapter. And before we look at it again, will you just uh, pray with me one more time? Father in heaven, thank you for your word. Use me as your vessel to speak your truths. Lord, and for everyone gathered here today, each one, uh, just as we've sung, uh, desiring and praying that you would speak to each of them from your word this morning. I pray that you would cause your word to go forth and not return void, accomplishing exactly that which you purpose it to do in each and every life here. Lord, let them hear your voice through your word this morning. Let them hear what you have to say. And Father, for all who have ears to hear, let them hear. And Lord, for those who are yet not yet believers in Christ, that even today you might open their ears to hear the good news of salvation in Jesus Christ. Lord, we pray these things in his name. Amen. Amen. Uh, for those of you that are uh, parents here, one of the joys and responsibilities of parents is that we had to have is to instruct our children, right? And I, I know for most of us, we don't sit down and just say, okay, uh, you are now four years old or three years old. Here is lesson number one. And then here's lesson number two, uh, lesson number three. Uh, you know, sometimes some of you might use a catechism. Uh, so you're kind of the, of a Reformed Presbyterian uh, background. But generally, uh, a lot of our instructions is just by repetition and by modeling. But I want to emphasize our repetition that comes with parenting. There are certain phrases that probably every parent here uh, would can remember if you if you're either a parent now or you are a parent at, you know of little children at some point, but they're all grown up now. That there are certain phrases that you just probably repeated, not just hundreds of times, but literally thousands of times over your lifetime. And um, you know uh, things like no no don't do that, <laughs> uh, be nice, uh, be gentle. Oh, oh, be careful. <laughs> uh, boy, at least those are the ones that are coming out of my mouth. Uh, share, share, okay? And uh, I think one of all, as they, especially as our kids are getting, or at least our oldest is getting older now and, and able to express uh, her will, I think one of the phrases that I, we, I'm hearing myself say, and Cindy sometimes on occasion saying as well, is this instruction to listen to mommy, listen to daddy, obey mommy. It's, you know, various versions of that. Listen to us. It's not that we uh, haven't told her before, but sometimes we just want her to listen and hear and obey what we've told her in the past. And we'll be doing that with our boys in due time as well. But that's what parenting is, involves, as I, I believe it involves. It is a lot of that. In fact, uh, the call to our children to listen to us, especially as they get older. And you can't help but think about, or at least I can't help but think about Proverbs when Solomon, the king, writes to his son, and a lot of times what is he saying? He's just simply saying to his son, listen to your father's words. Listen and remember your mother's instruction. He's reminding them. He says, I'm not going to tell you anything new, but just remember. Listen. Pay attention. Obey the words that I've told you in the past. The similar thing happens in the Christian life, doesn't it? Where God is our father and we are his children. Uh, the longer that we have been exposed to the Word of God, the longer you've been a Christian. When you sit here this morning and you hear the sermon preached and you hear the Word of God or you were you in Sunday school today, a lot of times what we hear is not something new, right? It's not something you haven't heard before at all. Many times what we hear is something that we've heard before, maybe 10, 20 times before at least, especially but when it gets to the gospel, it's something that we've heard well, hundreds, if not thousands of times. And sometimes when it comes to things that we are familiar with, that we've heard over time, uh, just like children do, eventually they're just kind of like, oh, mm, yeah, yeah, I know that, Dad, I know that. 
Not, my daughter doesn't do that, by the way. But, um, but you know how you know, some people were. At least that's how I was. We kind of just take for granted the things that God says. But when God's word speaks to us, uh, even this morning as we hear the word of God, it's, I, I think for most of us, we're not going to be learning new truths. But what often happens is that in each sermon, every time we sit under the word of God, God is simply reminding us of truths that we've already learned at some point, already heard at some point. And he's reminding us by, in a, through his spirit to say, here's what I taught you. Listen to me. Remember what I said to you. Obey these principles, these commands. And this is what we find in Isaiah 48 today. Isaiah 48 is a, sum, kind of a, an, a, a summary ending chapter of this subsection, this first subsection in Isaiah 40 to 66. And it is an exhortation from God to rebellious Israel. After having told them all that he was going to do, all his promises, reminded them of, of his goodness towards them, of, of how he's treated them, and, and particularly how he's going to deliver them from captivity, he tells them and encourages them to listen to me. Listen to me. We'll see that exact phrase in the text. And I pray that perhaps the Lord will use this text to encourage you. Maybe you're here today, and you've been a Christian for a long time. And maybe when you come here and you sit under the word of God, and you hear it, and, you, and you, your brain just literally shuts off. You know, so something's like, I mean, you're hearing it. You say, and you, I'm sure you tell me exactly what I preach, and you're coming and say, oh, that's a good sermon, PH. But we just kind of like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and it's like it goes in our brain, in our head, but it doesn't flesh out in how we live. Or was that just me? But I think you know what I mean if you've been a Christian for a while. Sometimes the word just comes in and we don't really live it. But we say, yeah, yeah. I give ahead and I acknowledge that. God wants us to listen to him. And perhaps, you know, maybe you're just going through the motions of Christian, your Christian faith for the last while, months, even years. Maybe you come here every Sunday and, and you just fall asleep and you know, I feel refreshed because of your nap rather than the word of God. Uh, maybe you come here every week and you, 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 know, you do your time and then you go out. You know, and, but God wants you to listen to him. God has some words to say to you, the reminder to you. And, uh, and I pray that uh, perhaps God would challenge you this morning through his word. See, Isaiah 48, as I've said, it really completes is a, is a summary chapter. It completes the first subdivision of this latter half of Isaiah 40 to 66. I've given to this to you in the past, but Isaiah 40 to 66 breaks down into three, cha- three sections of nine chapters each, 40 to 48, 49, 50, and you see them up there. And in each section, God is offering comfort to God's people. Comfort, first of all, through the promise of Israel's deliverance from the Babylonian captivity. In the chapters that we're going to look at in the weeks ahead, God's going to give them comfort through the knowledge of Israel's deliverer, the Messiah. And then chapter 58 to 66, God's going to offer comfort to his people through the hope of Israel's future glory. That There's a glorious future that awaits for them as a a nation of God, as God's people. And that's something that they will find comfort in as well. But 48 is this ending chapter. It kind of uh, completes this chapter. In the most recent chapters, God has promised deliverance from captivity through his anointed, that is, King Cyrus of Persia. He's told them that he will judge and destroy Babylon, that is, the empire that is ruling in the days of their captivity. And now he wants them to understand, having expressed to them the promises that he's given to them, understand and hear and listen to him. Be reminded of two things, particularly, the depths of their sinfulness, and the certainty of their salvation. And uh, we'll see these fleshed out. I I hope you'll see them fleshed out in the text this morning. And that as the people of God, I know we think of ourselves as holy. We are holy. We're to be holy as God is holy. But let us never forget that though we are holy, we're called to be a holy people, that we also still possess a sinful nature. And by by the fact that we have a sinful nature, we have a potential to experience, if we, if we disobey God, to experience the depths of our sinfulness. And that sinfulness, that sinful nature in us, is something that is worthy of eternal death and condemnation of God. He wants us to understand, but he also at the same time, despite who we are, 
our sinfulness, our, our sin nature. God wants us to know and understand, remember, that our salvation is certain. It's an absolutely certain salvation. You know, man, that's, it drives us, it will drive you to worship, and I pray that it will do that this, for you this morning. As we look at the outline for us today, it's going to be simple. Two truths that God wants his people to hear and understand. The first truth is found in verses 1 to 11. So this, divide, this chapter divides perfectly into two sections, verse 11, first 11 verses, second 11 verses. And the first 11 verses, God wants his people to understand and to know a truth concerning Israel's sin. A truth concerning Israel's sin. He, got, he wants them to grasp the depths of their sin. And although God has told Israel of his plans to deliver them from captivity, Israel surprisingly or unsurprisingly, depending on how, how uh, well you know your scriptures, have basically continued in sin. In verse 1 to 5, God points out Israel's unbelief, unbelief, that though they are nominally followers of God, that they are characterized by actual unbelief or, or sin. Verse 1 and 2, look at verse 1 and 2 with me. Hear this, O house of Jacob, who are named Israel and who came forth from the loins of Judah, who swear by the name of the Lord and invoke the God of Israel, but not in truth nor in righteousness. For they call themselves after the holy city and lean on the God of Israel. The Lord of hosts is his name. This chapter begins with a very familiar command to any Israelite. Hear, hear this. The Hebrew word, uh, I'll just tell you, it's the word shema. And for that's just a common here. It's like, you know, it's a word that for Hebrew people is like for Christians today, you should all know the word agape or something like that, you know, because it's the, the Greek word for love. But Shema was such a familiar word because it, it started off the great Shema, the Deuteronomy 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. And so this, is, this, this word is used not only in the Deuteronomy 6, but it's used several times in this chapter. Of the 11 times that this word is used in this chapter, four of those times are actually used as a command. So God is telling Israel to listen to him. You can't miss it. It's just a, uh, God wants them to hear him, listen to him. And we find it here in verse 1. We see it later on in verse 12 where he says, listen to me, O Jacob. In verse 14 where he's going to say, assemble all of you and listen. In verse 16, come near to me, listen to this. God wants Israel to listen now, that's his command, but what does he want them to listen to? What, do they want, what does he want them to understand, particularly from God? Before we get to that, notice how he, first of all, emphasizes Israel's honor and privilege as God's people, that he kind of builds them up. He kind of describes them for him, for them. And you can kind of think, as an Israelite, as you're hearing this, it's sort of almost like, uh, I think of... Uh, Paul, when he describes how he was a Jew, a, Gentile, a, Jew, a Jew of Jews, and, and a kind of a, a, a Pharisee, you know, uh, just something really great, his, his heritage, born in certain tri- the tribe of Benjamin, things like that. But that's kind of what we see here. God kind of develops this uh, heritage of the nation Israel, something that they would have found a lot of pride in. Notice, first of all, that they are the house of Jacob. Israel is part of the house of Jacob. Jacob uh, is there from Jacob's sons arise the nation of Israel. But Jacob, who is named Israel, is a significant phrase. It would, for most Israelites, would have reminded them of how Jacob got the name of Israel. You go to back to Genesis 32 for this, in fact. In Genesis 32, uh, Jacob's returning back uh, from, uh, from, the, from the east, heading back to the promised land. And he ends up having this dream or vision, actually, where he meets the angel of the Lord, God himself. He doesn't know that's him. But he starts, initially, he starts wrestling with him. And he wrestles with God, and he basically gets to the place where he, he holds on to uh, the, the, the Lord, and he won't let him go. And that's pretty crazy, right? You think, man, what if I wrestle with God? Do you think you can win? Uh, I don't think so, right? But Jacob wrestles with God and, in a sense, kind of wins. He, or the Lord in his providence, obviously, allowed him to hold on to him. But there's, there's human activity there. But So he holds on to him and he says, I will not let you go until you bless me. Right? And so what happens? God blesses him. And then God, at that time, calls him, says, your name will be Israel. Basically meaning one who is striven with God. 
And so you can imagine for Israel, being called Israel is a very, it's a great name. It's like being called Superman, you know? You're somebody who strove with God and you got a blessing out of it. There's great pride in this. This is for the house of Jacob. They, not only are they from the house of Jacob, but they, they come from this man. His name is Israel. So there's pride in that. Um, they would have found uh, pride furthermore in that, that he, they were, the Israelites are those who came forth from the, line, from the loins of Judah. Now, you remember, Israel is written to the southern kingdom, the southern kingdom being basically uh, centered around Jerusalem. And in the southern kingdom is primarily the tribe of Judah. The northern kingdom were ten and a half tribes, uh, and the southern kingdom was uh, basically the other, the remaining tribes, and one and a half tribes. And so the, to come from the line of Judah was significant because Judah, though he wasn't the oldest of the sons of Jacob, was the one through whom the Messiah, the king of Israel, would come. King David came from the line of Judah. His sons who sat on the throne came from the line of Judah. So for Jerusalem, or for these people in Judah, Judeans, they would have had great pride in being reminded that they came forth from the loins of Judah. What's more, the Israelites thought they were special because they swore or took oaths by the name of the Lord. When you take a swear, when you swear or make an oath, you must basically swear by something greater you know, than yourself. And so, yeah, the nations of the earth, they, they swore by their idols, but we know they're just all false. But for Israel, we swear by the name of the God of Israel, the one true and living God. They would have uh, said, acknowledged that. They recognized that they're swearing by something that is the greatest of all. What's more, when they invoked the name, the God of Israel in their prayers, they're calling upon God. They call about this God, who is their God. They call upon his great name. But then, having developed all this, uh, actually later on, verse 2, there's even more. But he then says, you are all this, but not in truth or in righteousness. It's like, whoa, that's a slam on the brakes for them. They would have said, but in a sense, not really. You do not... You do not know this, and you are not truly worshipers of me, nor does your life reflect the righteousness of the people who would follow after me, who worship me. God essentially is calling them out for their hypocrisy. He's calling them out for their sin. They don't know God, he says. They don't truly know God. They don't manifest that righteousness. They're only nominally the people of God. They're the kind of people who come to church every Sunday, who say they're Christians, but then the rest of their life, they live whatever way they want, but they'll be able to tell you, well, I believed in Jesus who died on the cross for my sins. Nominally, by name Christians, by name followers of God, but outwardly in truth and in righteousness, not. That's real significant. That's a real strong charge that he has from them. Here, here are the people of God who identify with God outwardly, but their hearts were far away from him, as it was written in Isaiah chapter 1. God furthermore calls out their hypocrisy in verse 2 that they identify with being from Jerusalem. Jerusalem was the city. You know, we're going to talk about Babylon a little bit, but in contrast to Babylon, which is a symbol, symbolic of basically all that is evil in this world, Jerusalem is symbolic to be the holy city of God. It's where God's righteousness would be manifest. And so they identify with the city of Jerusalem. That's their capital. What's more, they leaned on the fact that the God of Israel is the Lord of hosts, that their God is the Lord Almighty. Their God is a mighty God. But what use is it to acknowledge all these things? What use is it to say, I'm from Jerusalem? What use is it to say, oh, we lean upon the Lord of hosts almighty when you don't truly know him or worship him? This may have been a surprise to Israel when God said all this to them, when he called them out. He's pretty harsh to them regarding the hypocrisy. But we know that in God's omniscience, it, would not, it was not a surprise to him. He has known the sinfulness of Israel throughout its history which is why he has given them, or he had given them, all his prophecies. It's because of their sinfulness. And we're going to find out it's because of their sinfulness and their stiff-necked, stubborn, stiff-necked, stubborn people, hearts, that God gave them the prophets. That's what we find in verse 3 to 5. Look at verse 3 to 5. I declared the former things long ago, and they went forth from my mouth, and I proclaimed them. Suddenly I acted, and they came to pass. Because... Here's the reason why he gave all those things and then brought it to pass. I know that you are obstinate and your neck is an iron sinew and your forehead bronze. 
Therefore, I declared them to you long ago, before they took place. I proclaimed them to you, so that you would not say, My idol has done them, and my graven image and my molten image have commanded them. God basically reveals to Israel that all, all that he would do to them in his word when he's revealed through the prophets, and he was the one who acted to bring it to pass. It didn't just coincidentally happen, but whatever God said he would do, he actively brought it to pass. We learned about providence today in our Sunday school class. And I love that. That's, this is what is describing God's providence. God actively works through humanity to concurrently in governing them to bring about the accomplishment of his will for his glory. He does that. He brought it all to pass. This is God's providence. I'm providential. And, or he's orchestrating all of history, all that happened to them. And he did so. So they and told them beforehand because he knew of their sinfulness. He knew that if they if he hadn't told them, or if he didn't actually took care of it and do it do it himself, then they would have eventually attributed if eventually it happened, or when he did bring it to mouth, they would say, and he didn't hadn't told them, then they would have thought, Oh, our gods did it. Idol Israel was notorious for their worship of idols and graven images. And when they were captive in Babylon for seventy years, they would have likely picked up the other gods as well. In Babylon. See, in the depths of their sin, Israel did not truly have faith in God. That's the problem. They were often people giving lip service to God, but then worshiping other gods. That's a sobering charge that God makes against Israel. I believe it's a sobering charge that we need to hear today, too. We all can be guilty of this sin. These are his people. Here we are, his people. We are San Francisco Bible Church, right? When you hear that name, San Francisco Bible Church, does it give you a little bit of pride? Okay, maybe you're humble. No. It does for me. I, I proudly identify with San Francisco Bible Church. I'm, I'm glad to be a pastor of San Francisco Bible Church. You know why? More, more than any other Bible Church, in fact, even, because we're in San Francisco. Don't you, don't you, you've heard, you know, you know why it's, it's great to be a Christian here, right? Because it's dark here. You have the opportunity to make a profound impact in this city because this city is dark and needs the gospel. That's why we have San Francisco in our name. It reminds us of that. We have a great opportunity to be a bright light in this city. But we're also San Francisco Bible Church. Man, it's great. We teach the Bible here. A lot of churches go up and down. You're not going to hear the Bible taught. Well, it may, you know, there are some who would still teach it. But there's a good number that don't. They've forgotten the word of God. And we would, I think you come to this church, you're going to hear what the Bible teaches, and hopefully you're going to hear what the Bible does teach about. But the Bible teaches about Christ and his salvation. That's why we're a church. We're those who are called out. We're called out from the world to Christ. That's why we call ourselves a church. So San Francisco Bible Church, I identify with San Francisco Bible Church, but that means nothing if I don't know him. It means nothing. If, my, if I come here and I go through all the motions, I, I participate in the worship service of San Francisco Bible Church, but my heart is far away from him. I do not worship him in truth. I do not worship him in righteousness. I, do not live a, in, I don't manifest the fruits of righteousness in my life as a result of this professed knowledge of Christ. God wants our heart. We would deceive ourselves to think that we can be content to define our relationship with God by our name, our history, our outward acts of worship. God wants our worship. God wants our love, a sincere devotion to him alone. He wants our faith to completely rest on him and his word. Sadly, this wasn't true of Israel. And so he, God continues to describe from the, Israel's unbelief, he describes Israel's unworthiness. Israel's unworthiness in verse 6 through 11. We read verse 6 8 first. You have heard, look at all this, and you, will you not declare it? I proclaim to you new things from this time, even hidden things which you have not known. They are created now and not long ago, and before today you have not heard them, so that you will not say, behold, I knew them. You have not heard, you have not known. Even from long ago, your ear has not been opened because I knew that you would deal very treacherously. 
and you have been called a rebel from birth. Although Israel had heard in a sense where they had received and the prophets had spoken to them of all of God's prophecies in the past, and they had seen, they had witnessed the fulfillment of them in, in Israel's history, the nation as a whole still did not acknowledge it. They didn't declare it. They didn't go out and tell others about this God who was their God, their redeeming God. And so God says, since you basically did not respond to those uh, prophecies in the right way, I'm going to give you new prophecies. I'm going to give you new prophecies that you would not know about. Things that I have not told you about, but I'm going to start telling you about here in this book of Isaiah. And we start seeing what are these new things? They're going to be, as we see in 49 and 50, we're going to see that these are prophecies that regard the suffering servant. We see the servant songs. He's going to tell them more about the Messiah. Now, obviously, they knew about the Messiah and other prophecies, but he's revealing things about the Messiah that they had not known before in the chapters ahead. We're going to find, we'll look at them as we see. And though he gives them new prophecies, as he says, instead of producing repentance and faith, God knows that they would continue to fall on deaf ears, that they would continue to not hear. They would be, because they are rebels from birth. You can just read sinners from birth, born with a sinful nature. So what is God to do with Israel? Here's a nation that he has chosen, that he's redeemed. He, he delivered them from Egypt to be his people, his chosen nation. He's loved them, revealed truth to them, fulfilled many promises to them. Now he's even given them further revelation about the Messiah. Yet their hearts remain far away from him. They continue to worship idols. They still do not heed his words. God has every right to not deliver Israel, doesn't he? God, if it was up to us, if it was up to me, I guess me, just me, but me, I would say, oh, Lord, you have every right to forsake those people and choose a new nation. Choose some great nation to be your nation. Problem is, there is no great nation, is there? You can look all around the world for nations of this earth, and there is none that is worthy of God. They're all sinful nations, all rebels from birth, in our country included. And though God has every right to not deliver Israel, to turn his back on Israel because of their sin, because of their response to his word, God doesn't. He doesn't. But look at verse, what he does in verse 9 to 11. But these two things, I'm sorry, that's wrong. 9 verse 9, for the sake of my name, I deliver my wrath. I delay my wrath, pardon me. And for my praise, I restrain it for you in order not to cut you off. Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tested you in the furnace of affliction. For my own sake, for my own sake, I will act. For how can my name be profaned? And my glory I will not give to another. Here, God is basically promising uh, to fulfill his word to deliver Israel. Just as he promised, I'm going to deliver you from Babylon captivity, even though you have continued in sinfulness. That's, that's just powerful truth. He doesn't do it because of them. He's not going to deliver because of how great Israel is, because of how holy they are, how, how righteous they are. He's not going to deliver because of anything they've done, of like how they've testified to all of Babylon of the greatness of their God while in captivity for 70 years. He doesn't do that for them. He's not delivering them for that reason. Rather, he delivers them because of whom? Because of himself. God does, delivers them, saves them for his own sake, for his own name. He delays his wrath toward Israel. He doesn't judge them, though they deserve judgment. It's for his own praise that he doesn't cut off Israel. Verse 10 is a, is a, is a passage that you read and say, Behold, I have refined you but not as silver. I've tested you in the furnace of affliction. And we know normally when we hear this term refiner, we think of the term of how God refines us and burns off the dross. You know, burns off the, he puts us through fire, in this term, a furnace of affliction, that is the Babylonian captivity, in order to burn off the, the sin in the, in the lives of his people, what he's, what he's putting through the refiner. But God says, I have refined you, but not as silver. It's kind of interesting 
It's like, is that we find out in, in a parallel passage in Ezekiel, and it's ref, uh, Ezekiel 22, verse 18, 22. God says, I refined you, and you're like dross. God says, you're not the silver, you're like dross. You're the stuff that's actually burned off. <laughs> that's humbling. You know, we hope that God refines us, and we find out that we, we turn out like gold, silver, and precious stones, right? We hope that God's going to burn out the trial. But what if God was put you through the trial, and then you turn out to be dross? You get, you're the stuff that gets burned off. You come to realize that you're not really a follower of Christ or a follower of God, in this case, for Israel. The reality is that they continued in their sin. Though, he, though God tested them, and they were found wanting. They were tested in the furnace of affliction and found to be fake and unfaithful to God. But nevertheless, though they were found, many, the majority of the nation was, as a whole was, was not following the Lord. There's always that remnant, by the way, that is faithful to God. God says, though, despite of that, for his own sake, he says it twice, for his own sake, he will act. That is, he's going to fulfill his promises. He's going to do what he said he was going to do for Israel. He will deliver them from captivity in Babylon. He's going to do it for his own glory. Because if he didn't deliver them, then in those days, people, people's lives and what happened to you were reflective of the God that you worship. And if he didn't deliver them, then people would have reason to say, oh, the glory belongs to Bel and Nebo, to Marduk. Because they overpowered these Israelites and kept them as slaves. Their God is too weak to deliver them. But God says, I will not give my glory to another. God has promised to deliver them, and he will deliver them no matter what condition they are in, sinners and all. And this imagery, I hope you, as we're reading, you're like, oh, I know where you're going with this, PH, right? Because you know, this, what is this? This is the gospel, isn't it? This totally leads to the gospel. The imagery is so striking, for this is what God has done in our lives. Has he not? Has he not done in your life? Boy, if you don't, <laughs> yeah, I hope so. I hope, I hope we all realize that God didn't choose to save us because we're some upstanding righteous people, right? We weren't. God didn't save us because he looked into the future and said, oh, Henry is going to be a great preacher. He's going to preach that wonderful sermon someday. I'm going to choose to save him because of just that sermon. You'll still be waiting for that sermon, by the way. (laughs) But God chose me to save me, and God chose you to save you, despite the fact that we are all sinners and fall short of the glory of God. Right? God knows our heart. Yes, he is sovereign. He chooses people from eternity past for, for, for salvation, no doubt. And he does that. He brings it to pass. But God also knows that apart from his sovereign work of saving us and regenerating our hearts, we are all wicked, desperately so. We are, none of us would have chosen. None of us are good. God glorifies himself through delivering us despite our sin. He doesn't save us because of who we are or what we've done. He saves us by his sovereign grace. He gave his son to be crucified for our sins, not because we're worthy, we're all unworthy, not because we're good, because we're all bad. Rather, he does so because he is worthy and he is good. That's why he gave us his son, to save us from our sins. And he does it despite our sins. And when he saves us through his son, he deserves what? He deserves all the glory because salvation is all of him. I didn't earn my salvation. I'm not earning my salvation right now. None of us are. If there is any righteousness and truth that comes out of our life, it is to the glory of God because he is manifesting in us, in Christ. You and I added nothing to our salvation, brothers and sisters, right? We didn't do anything to get saved. We just simply received the gift that he offered. And even then, that faith was a gift from him. And if you've come to know the salvation, then we need people who, I hope, will just praise God. We'll be exuberant in our praise. We'll want to tell others and testify to others about who is our Redeemer, this God who saves us despite our sins. And that's what Israel should have done. Because he's worthy. So the first truth is this, regarding the sin of Israel, concerning Israel's sin, is that the depths of Israel's sin is great. 
but the mercy of Israel's God is greater. Well, there's a second truth that God wants his people to hear and understand in verses 12 to 22. And we find here that concerning a truth concerning Israel's salvation, that the salvation that God's going to give to them despite their sin. Since God's deliverance of Israel would not be based upon Israel, but instead upon God, we learn then in these verses more about who makes salvation possible. We learn about God. We learn about God's character in verses 12 to 16. Three times in these five verses, we're going to find the command to listen to God. It's almost like it's an accelerated repetition of the phrase, listen to me. It's like when, you know, you, know, you, you, you drive along. <laughs> Sometimes it happens where I'm driving along and, um, and, and you know, it, somebody in the car uh, sees me and they say, hey, stop. You know, you, you know, you see the red light up there? And I'm like, I still keep going, you know, driving my high speed. And, and then, but as I get closer, then I hear, stop, 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 because I'm getting close. Well, this is kind of what it says. God is saying, listen, listen, listen. There's an urgency here. For the Israelites to listen. And when he says, what he, why, is this, why does he tell them to listen? First of all, he wants them to listen because of who he is. Who is his character? Who he is and that they, why they need to listen to him. First of all, he's the eternal creator. Verse 12 to 13. Listen to me, O Jacob, even Israel whom I called. I am he, I am the first, I am also the last. Surely my hand founded the earth and my right hand spread out the heavens. When I called to them, they stand together. God reveals himself here as the eternal I am, the word from which we get God's personal name, Yahweh. He is the first, the last. That is, from the very beginning of time, he was there. For the very end of time, he will be there. He is there, even. He exists eternally. It is he who created, and this eternal God is the one who created all heavens and the earth from the very beginning, as Genesis 1-1 says. So God tells Israel to listen to him because he is the eternal creator. Secondly, he wants them to listen to him because he is sovereign savior. The sovereign savior in verse 14 to 15. Assemble all of you, all of the people of Israel, and listen. Who among them has declared these things? The Lord loves him. He will carry out his good pleasure on Babylon, and his arm will be against the Chaldeans. I, even I, have spoken. Indeed, I have called him. I have brought him, and he will make his way successful. Here, God is speaking of his sovereignty and using the Persian king Cyrus to deliver Israel. If you've been with us, remember all the prophecies that have been made already. God has orchestrated history, basically. He's orchestrated all of history to call forth and bring forth Cyrus. Remember, he named Cyrus before... Some 80-some years, even before Cyrus was born. But he named the name of the very man who would deliver Israel from captivity even before they were in captivity. And that's how great God's prophecies are. God has orchestrated all history to bring forth Cyrus so that he would be successful in the overthrow of Babylon. This is the sovereign savior of Israel. But the clues in this, in this passage, especially a little later in verse 20, indicate that this verse isn't only about Cyrus. That in, just like in many of the Isaiah's prophecies, just think of Isaiah 7, of the virgin birth. There's often a, a near and far fulfillment to, every, to a prophecy. And that's the case here. The near fulfillment is obvious. It's, it's Cyrus' deliverance of uh, Israel from Babylon. But there's a far fulfillment implied here as well. A far fulfillment of this verse that is fulfilled in the Messiah when he comes at his second coming. When he comes and he will once and for all defeat Babylon. Babylon, not so much as a city, but as a, as a representative of all that is world, a spirit of rebellion in this world, human rebellion and man-made religion. God will love him like no other. And this man, this Messiah will come and will carry out God's good pleasure, God's will. He will bring salvation, but he will also bring judgment in the, in, at the millennial kingdom. According to Revelation 18, Babylon, and I think some of you studied this in your Revelation class, Babylon is the spirit, as the spirit of human rebellion and self-made religion 
will in that day, the day of the Lord, be destroyed. They'll be completely wiped off this earth. And it will be at the hands of the Messiah and God. There's a third uh, attribute of who God is that he, that he wants them to know so they would listen to him, and that is that he is the word of truth. He is the God of truth, the word of truth, uh, I'll put. And that's in verse 16. He says, come near to me, listen to this. From the first, I have not spoken in secret. From the time it took place, I was there. And now the Lord God has sent me and his spirit. This verse is a little odd. Because right in the middle of the verse, near the end, there's a change. It seems to be a really obvious change in in person speaking. Initially, it seems to be God that's speaking. And God is speaking. God is revealed here that basically says, listen to this. Come near to me. Listen to this. From the first, I have not spoken in secret. That is, I've not hidden my prophecies to you. In fact, I was there when they were fulfilled because I was acting to bring it to the past. That's what God's saying. He didn't speak in his heart. He revealed all he was going to do. He had given them his word. He had given them the prophets. God had spoken to the people in many different ways, but he spoke to them primarily through the prophets, telling them what was going to take place. And then the end of verse 16 kind of pops up. The story stands out because you expect God to be speaking, but then it says, and someone is saying, and now the Lord God has sent me and his spirit. It's a change of uh, subject here. Someone is saying that God sent him and his spirit. Now, there are some people who say that this is Isaiah. Oh, this is Isaiah. Or if you're liberal, real liberal, you say this is Deutero-Isaiah, the kind of, you know, the um, supposed second author of Isaiah, mythical. uh, No evidence for that. But some say it's Isaiah. But I think when you look at the picture of all of Isaiah, when you look at who comes in the spirit, Along with the Spirit, in Isaiah, it is none other than a reference to the Messiah. This is a reference to the Messiah. Messiah. We've seen this several times already. Who comes in the power of the Spirit? The root of Jesse, Isaiah 11.2. Who's going to come in the power of the Spirit? Isaiah 42.1. That is the Messiah, the servant. We see it here in this passage. He comes with the Holy Spirit. In Isaiah 61. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, speaking again about the Messiah in Isaiah 61. And why is this passage here? Why does all of a sudden the, the Messiah speak up and say, God has sent me with the Spirit? Because this verse is talking about God speaking, God giving revelation. Up to this point, God has spoken through his prophets, right? But in the future, this is a prediction of the Messiah. By the way, this is a uh, just a hint of the Trinity, too, for those of you uh, looking at the, all three persons of the Trinity are here. But this is a, a revelation that God would speak in the future, at least from the point of Isaiah's time, in the future would be through his Messiah, his messianic servant, his son, Jesus. We know this from Hebrews. But in this present day, God has spoken to us in his son. That's why John in John 1.1 calls Jesus the word the word who was with the God, the word was God, the word who reveals God's character to us. God's spoken to them. God is a, a revelatory God. He, he's a revealing God. And because of these attributes of God, this is his character, therefore Israel is to listen to him when he talks to them about their salvation. That it's a certain salvation because he is the eternal creator. He's made everything. What else can he not make? He's the sovereign savior. He's sovereign over all this world. He's, his providence, he's orchestrating all events to bring about the fulfillment of his promises. And he's the word of truth, the God of truth, who speaks only truth and brings it to pass. And he's most powerfully, he's going to speak to us one day in his son. And for those of us on the other side of the cross, we already have that word in the New Testament. So listen to him. So what is it that God wants to list, them to listen to? We see that in verse 17 and 22, God's call. God's call in verse 17 22. Seven, let me read 17 19 first. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. I am the Lord, your God, who teaches you to profit, who leads you in the way you should go. If only you had paid attention to my commandments, then your well-being would have been like a river 
and your righteousness like the waves of the sea. Your descendants would have been like the sand and your offspring like its grains. Their name would never be cut off or destroyed from my presence. Verse 17 to 19 remind the Israelites of the consequences of not listening to God. He's reminding them that I'm your God. I'm the one who taught you. I'm the one who has led you. And though I've taught you, though I've led you, you've not listened to me. If you had only listened to me, and kind of just almost like a, a parent when they say, yeah, I told you, you should have listened to me. You know, but God, you know, God does it righteously, of course. And parents, they're trying to do it righteously too, but you know, we just take it the wrong way. But if you only had listened to me, if they had listened, then they and their descendants would have been blessed. They would have experienced, they would have not been cut off, they would have not been brought into captivity. They would not have been slaughtered when Nebuchadnezzar came and wiped out Jerusalem and burned it to the ground and took just uh, the remaining, the survivors, into captivity. They, if they had only paid attention, then their well-being would have been like a river. That word well-being is the Hebrew word shalom, the very common word that means peace. It's the same word that we're going to find later on at the end of verse, at the verse 22. They would have known the peace of God. They would have known Peace like a river, as we sing in the familiar children's song. But they don't have peace like a river. But since Israel didn't listen to him, that's why they were taken into captivity for 70 years. That's why they were, uh, their city of Jerusalem was conquered. But praise God. Though they didn't listen to him, God has promised to deliver them from their captivity in Babylon. And because he has promised to do so, he would do so through the Persian King Cyrus. He would act just as he has done in the past. He would act. Calls them again to listen. And verse 20 contains the very specific call that God has for Israel. This is what he calls for them to do. He says, so you've promised. Now, you just simply have to, you need to trust me. But this is what he calls them to do in trusting him. Verse 20 to 22, go forth from Babylon. Flee from the Chaldeans. Declare with the sound of joyful shouting. Proclaim this. Send it out to the ends of the earth. Say, the Lord has redeemed his servant Jacob. They did not thirst when he led them through the deserts. He made the water flow out of the rock for them. He split the rock and the water gushed forth. There is no rest. There is no peace for the wicked, says the Lord. Verses 20 to 22 are really three kind of separate little small statements that God gives to Israel. But God, the first 20 is his call to Israel basically to go forth from Babylon, get out of Babylon, leave Babylon, go home to Jerusalem. This is an implication that God, God's basically saying you are going to be delivered. Cyrus is going to come. He's going to deliver you. He's going to tell, set, make the decree that anyone who wishes can go back to Jerusalem to rebuild the city and rebuild the temple. And But God says to them, has to tell them, so go. Go home. Go back to Jerusalem. Get out of Babylon. And you can imagine, why does God have to tell them this? Because the captivity has been 70 years. And if you live through that whole time, then you've been spent 70 years of your life in Babylon. What do you think happened after 70 years? They got used to living there. <laughs> they got used to living there. They, they started picking up the culture of Babylon. They liked the weather in Babylon. They, liked the, they bought houses or they had a home in Babylon. They had figured out how to live in Babylon, how to make a living. And there's, there's historical records of very successful Jewish families in Babylon. Why would they want to leave Babylon? Babylon is been great to them. It's treated them well, though it's been meant to be a judgment from God. But God has to tell them, go home. Go home. If you trust me, if you believe in me, if you call me your God, if you name my name, if you've heard my promises, if you believe the promise that I made to Abraham to make him into a great nation, to give him a land to be in so that he would be a blessing to the nations, then you know that this place, this land, is in, Judah, in, Judah, in Israel, and in the center of Israel is the capital of Jerusalem. And I want you to go back there because that's where my promises are centered upon for you as the people of God. 
If you believe God, you need to go back and get out of Babylon and go back to Jerusalem is the idea. Be faithful. Trust him. By the way, the application for us is not for us to leave our hometown. No, you know. That's Israel. That's Israel. And this would have been a comfort to Israel to leave, to, to be, this would be an encouraged exhortation for them to leave. But God gives them comfort in verse 21. says, trust me. Yes, you're going to have to leave all that you find comfortable. Yes, you're going to have to travel through a wilderness to get back to this problem. Yes, you're going to go back to a place that's just run down compared to Babylon, which is the capital of the most powerful empire in that day. It's probably the most beautiful place in all the world. And you're going to go back to a run-down city that's been burned to the ground, where basically just migrants, wild animals roam, the walls all torn down. Remember when Nehemiah walked through, it just brought him to tears. He cried. Verse 21 provides some comfort. Say, I will provide for you. Just like I provided for the Israelites in the Exodus. He gave them water. They didn't thirst. He provided for their needs. And the return from Babylon would be like a second exodus for the Israelites. But verse 22 is a final exhortation, almost a warning, if you will, to the people of of God. And he tells them there is no peace for the wicked. There's no peace for the wicked. It's a warning. It's actually an implication that the wicked are those who basically do not trust the Lord. They're the people who don't listen to him, who don't obey him, who don't answer his call to leave Israel and go back, or leave Babylon and go back to Jerusalem. He says to them, you're not going to find peace. Those who do not leave Babylon will find no peace. And you recall, too, historically, that only a small percentage of actual Israelites left Babylon, 50,000 or so actually went back to the promised land. The majority of the Israelites that had been taken, been in captivity, born in captivity in Babylon, remained there. But for them, they would have had no peace. You know, when it comes to the application of this text, this exhortation, we really see We really see that Israel, regarding their salvation, is to trust in him because his salvation is secure, certain and secure. They are to trust in him. We need to be people who respond also in a, in a way that we trust in him because our salvation is secure. God wants us to know that we not to, even though we understand the gospel, you believe in the gospel, to not settle for the world, to not settle for peace elsewhere besides in God. There is no, if you look for peace anywhere outside of God, outside of his salvation in Christ, you will be disappointed. If you're going to look for uh, peace in this world through your activities, through maybe your work, through, you're going to look for peace maybe through your, your relationships in this world, you will be disappointed. God wants us to find our peace in Christ in Christ alone, in the salvation that is ours through him. And that salvation does impact our work. It does impact our relationships. It does impact the things that we enjoy in this world. But that peace ultimately is, is ground up in the God of peace, not the things that we have in this world. So God really just wants his people. And, if, and you remember Babylon as a spirit of rebellion, of a spirit of human independence and spirit of human religion is something that still manifests in our day. And God wants all of us, his people, to make sure if we're caught up in living in Babylon, we need to get out of Babylon. Figuratively so. We need to leave any kind of dependence upon man, any dependence upon finding our peace in the things of this world. We need to find, make sure that we're people who find joy and peace in the salvation that's ours in Christ. And a, and I'm not just spiritualizing this because this sure does sound like spiritualizing if you're a hermeneutics guy, okay? But I want to show you Revelation 18.4 because, well, you would have seen this in your Revelation class, I hope. Here we see exactly that this, in the future, God's going to judge Babylon. And this is what he says. I heard another voice from heaven. So John's writing, I heard another voice from heaven crying, saying, come out of her. That's Babylon. My people 
so that you will not participate in her sins and receive of her plagues. In this text, God's just calling his people, not just unbelievers. He says, my people, all of you who name my name, get out of Babylon. Come out of there. Don't participate in her sins. Don't receive her the penalties of her sins. Don't be involved in it. Get out of there because that nation's going to be judged or that city's going to be judged and that, that whole world is going to be judged. And that's a, going to be a future judgment that takes place. But in the meantime, it's easy for us as believers in Christ to also at times forget. Right? We forget God's word. We forget about our, the certainty of our salvation. We forget about our sinfulness. And when we hear the word of God, we say, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And we will go through the motions of our Christian faith. And we'll, we'll say we're Christians and we, we can tell you the gospel. But our lives are lived as if Christ is not home. Christ is not there. I think we can all relate with that at times. When God seems far off, or really we're far off from God, it's because we've been caught up in Babylon. And there's things in the desires of the world, the, 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 the things of this world. So convicted this week. <laughs> Why? Of this. What am I looking forward to? What is my hope in? Is it in something? Or is it in someone? What did you most look forward to this week? Who did you look forward to most this week? Oh, I confess. This was one of those weeks I was looking forward to something else that was God. We all can get caught up like that. God wants us to long for him, to be devoted to him, to worship him, to get out of Babylon so that we will not be judged alongside with her. Brothers and sisters, don't be nominal Christians. Don't, go, don't just sleep through your Christian life. Awaken. And God says, he who has an ear, let him hear. Perhaps you're here and you're not yet a Christian. Well, I'm praying that God would open your ears today. That you understand that God is a God of wrath and he's withholding his judgment, but one day judgment's gonna come on all of this world because of sin. And if you have not yet turned away from sin and, it's, and rejected all the, uh, rejected the, the world of sin, the, the pleasures of sin that this world offers you, the things of this world, these earthly things, if you not rejected that and turn instead to what God offers you in Jesus Christ and that he offers you salvation through the death of his son on the cross for all your sins, he's provided it completely for you so that you might receive this free gift through faith in him. You don't have to do anything. The life that you live afterwards is not going to be one where you're trying to earn your salvation. But it's going to be a life of joy where you're working out what God has, or has planned for your life. And today you might begin that life, a life out of Babylon, a life that's going to head towards, not Jerusalem, but a life that heads towards Christ, centered upon Christ where all the promises of salvation are bound up in. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you, Lord, for your word and for the truths here. Pray that you would, um, that you would cause us to remember and what you've said. Lord, guard us from having an apathetic ear and saying, yeah, yeah, yeah. But Lord, may you cause us to realize how easily our heart deceives us, how easily we get up, caught up in the things of this world how we easily get caught up in thinking that what it happens in our life is because of our own efforts, is because of our own power and strength. And we forget, Lord, that everything that happens, all that goes on in our, in our lives is because of you. And Father, thank you for reminding us of our sin, the depths of our sin. Help us to never forget that, and that it would make the gospel that much more uh, a treasure because we know 
that our salvation is secure despite our sins. We also praise you, Lord, that that our salvation is certain and secure. Therefore, Lord, help us to trust you. Help us to trust you, Father, and help us to walk in obedience to your ways. Help us to listen to your word, to not neglect your word, to not just take it for granted that, oh, well, I believed in you. I don't need to do anything else. Father, help us to be faithful, to be those witnesses that you want us to be, to tell others of this world, especially in this season, of the one who is our great redeemer, you and your Messiah, Jesus Christ. In his name we pray, amen, amen. God bless you, you're dismissed. Have a wonderful week.